0: Well good morning. Good morning and welcome. It's good to see you here this morning. My name is Liam and uh, pastor here and we're glad to welcome you to this conference today. Uh, I'm going to get out of the way in a moment but I just wanted to add my word of welcome to you. We're uh, privileged to have you here and to have Carl here uh, this weekend. Let's prepare our minds for what we're doing today because Uh, Often when we come to consider theology as theologians or as pastors, we begin to operate at a professional level, really, and I think it's important to remind ourselves that theology is really for the glory of God. Uh, Remember Paul's words of that great doxology in Romans 11, O the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. We'll pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we bow before you this morning and acknowledge your wisdom, love, and power. We acknowledge that your judgments are beyond our all tracing out, your ways with us and your ways with humanity Uh, transcend our thought, and we bow in worship and wonder before you, acknowledging you to be our God. We worship you as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We worship you as your people. We bless you that from all eternity you set your love upon us and by your grace have drawn us to the Lord Jesus, opened our eyes to see beautiful things about you in your law, and drawn our wills to bow in submission to your authority. And We come today, Lord, we come as those committed to your church and to your people, committed to your word and doctrine And pray that by your grace today as we meditate together and as your servant, Carl, leads us in our thinking, that, Lord, we would give our minds to your word and our hearts to your your love and our wills to your obedience. We pray, Father, that you would give us that sense of your presence, that felt sense, that even in the midst of talking about exalted things, that we are in the presence of the God who has revealed himself Finally, in Christ and in the Holy Scriptures, we pray that today we might be conscious, therefore, of your presence among us. And we ask your blessing in Jesus' strong name. Amen.
1: May I give you a warm welcome? My name is Paul Woodbridge. I have the privilege of chairing Theology for All, or Tyndale Fellowship Associates, as it was once called, and therefore to be part of the group which arranged this conference and it's my great privilege particularly to welcome Carl, um, who's flown in all the way from uh, Philadelphia, mainly for this conference, but also for one or two other things as well. And you'll see from your little fly which you picked up when you came in, that Carl's going to speak to us um, in three sessions um, on three different topics. We've got an hour for each session. Um, we'll have some quest- time for questions for clarification at the end of each session. But you'll see at 3.20, we have a particular question and answer slot. So any more detailed questions, perhaps you could leave for those sessions. But let me hand over now to Carl. You know Carl is Professor of uh, Historical Theology and Church History at Westminster Theological Seminary. And we're delighted, even though he's, he's actually not American, he's English, I think. Definitely. Right. Um, right. Not Welsh, sadly. But anyway, we won't go into that. And he's, he's actually taught at Nottingham and Aberdeen as well, before uh, he got shipped over to America. But we've got him back for today, so warm welcome to Carlton.
2: Speaking all day today, I've given warning that if I start to say things that are very strange, or if I fall asleep in my own lecture, uh, please just run up and take me down from the podium as quickly as possible. Uh, I'm, I speak to, to put my cards on the table right at the start. I'm not a, uh, a biblical theologian. I'm not a systematic theologian. I'm a church historian. So what you'll be getting today is a church historian's take on the particular topics I've decided to address. Uh, and one thing I learned as a church historian many years ago was that problems that manifest themselves in the church as theological problems often don't have theological causes. And in, particularly in the second uh, class today, in the second lecture today, when I look at the contemporary challenges to theology in church life, I, I see many of the challenges to contemporary theology and church life as not being particularly theological. Uh, there are issues, I think, that have a huge impact on how we think about theology in the church that are not theological. And that makes them more difficult to deal with because they operate at a level in our lives that often we're not conscious of. And I hope that by bringing uh, these things to the surface, I would at least have, if I haven't solved some of the problems, and I I, I fear I will not solve any problems today, I would have at least made the problems more complicated for you, but perhaps have also set you on um, paths of thinking that might lead you to to come up with solutions to these problems. So the the three lectures will basically break down as follows. This morning I want to talk uh, in historical terms about why... Protestant theology developed the way it did and how uh, historically in Protestant theology there has always been uh, an intimate connection between theological convictions and church life and the way people live their lives. I use the term Protestant there not in a sectarian way, uh, but because I think on the whole it's a more helpful term than than evangelicalism for for what I particularly want to do. Protestantism to me carries with it that uh, notion of creeds and confessions 16th and 17th century that I think evangelicalism it's now a very broad term doesn't quite carry the same uh, implications so I'm not making a sectarian point I just happen to think that Protestantism it's it's a sad it's sad that the term Protestantism has developed so many unfortunate connotations should we say over the last 100 150 years I think it's extremely useful second session I want to look at contemporary challenges to theology and church life and then in the final session I want to ask, well, given these challenges, uh, what should we be thinking about in our churches in order to make them more theological? So then, theology then. Why and how does theology develop from church life? Well, if you go right back to the early church and you go back to the period immediately after the apostles, that is where one might say that theology proper first starts. With the death of the apostles, the authority in the church passes to their successors, and the church has a series of problems that face it. One of them is well, where does authority now lie? Uh, How far does the canon extend? What does it mean to be a Christian in the Roman Empire? A whole host of very practical questions crowd in on the church. And one of the great pleasures uh, I have of teaching church history is teaching the early church course at Westminster. It's generally speaking not something that to use the term again Protestants are very comfortable with. The Reformation, that's where we see our theology beginning to a large extent. The Reformation is where it all really starts for us. But of course you don't have to study the Reformation for very long to realize that the Reformers had tremendous respect for the theology of the early church fathers. The debate with Rome was not a debate about whether the patristic authors were useful or not. It was a debate about How are they useful? What kind of authority is to be ascribed to them? And studying the ancient church makes one thing very clear. For all of the very, very sophisticated and metaphysical language that enters Christian theology in the early church, when you think of, say, Trinitarian doctrine, you have language there of person and substance. God is three persons and one substance. And when you read somebody like Athanasius or Gregory of Nyssa and you read their works, some of the arguments seem very obscure and the language is very strange and foreign to us and has led some to say, well, this is all an intrusion of philosophy into the simple faith uh, that Paul and Christ expressed in the New Testament. When you read these texts, the one thing you have to hold in mind is this, and that is the problem with which they're wrestling is a very simple and straightforward one. It's the problem, really, of Christian worship all of the rarefied Trinitarian stuff that emerges in the early church is an attempt, I think, to answer two questions. One, it appears that Jesus is Lord is the cry of praise in the early church. And when you say Jesus is Lord in the early church, the whole host of problems can be associated with that. Theologically, what are you saying there? Well, God is the Lord. So when you say Jesus is Lord, you're immediately raising the question, when you praise, well, but who must Christ be for me to be able to describe him as the Lord? You also, of course, raise a very interesting political question. I won't address that so much these days, but Caesar is Lord. So what does it mean when you say Jesus is Lord? Is that civil disobedience? Are you a fifth columnist? Are you a subversive? So there's a very practical political question arises from that. But at the heart, therefore, of the very rarefied discussions about Trinitarianism that take place in the early church is a very practical concern. What do we mean when in the worship service we cry, Jesus is Lord? What do we mean when when we baptize people, we baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? What are the Son and the Holy Spirit doing there with the Father? And I say to students, it doesn't matter how confused you get when we're working our way through the Trinitarian controversies. It's very, very confusing, and it gets horribly messy and horribly political at times. But the basic question is an extremely relevant one. And the question is, who is Jesus? What does Jesus' Lord mean? What does it mean to have Jesus' name there with the Trinitarian formula? So theology, I would say to you, has its origins, it has its origins in the church, and it has its origins in trying to make sense of Christian worship and praise. Trying to make sense of the words, the language we use about God, and the prayer and the praise we offer to God. The same sort of thing applies in the Middle Ages. If Protestants are wary of the early church, we're often even more wary of the Middle Ages, and for good reason. There are significant problems associated with the theology of the Middle Ages. Most obvious, of course, is the rise of Roman supremacy in the West. You know, Protestants, we define ourselves well, who are we? We are those who don't regard the Pope as the representative of God on earth. Whatever our views of the Pope may be, we don't accept the Pope's own claims about himself. That makes us Protestants. Where do those claims emerge? In the Middle Ages. So we're very, very wary of medieval theology. Secondly, the Mass. Often as probably well, we don't hold to the, the sacramental theology of the Catholic Church. Where does that really emerge? It emerges in the Middle Ages. And the third point, well, we're often told that medieval theology is incredibly obscure anyway. The old uh, question, well, they were wrapped up with questions about how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And you immediately think, well, what an irrelevant question that is. I would actually say that's quite a relevant question because it raises questions about how do eternal beings relate to time and space. It's an extremely important question when you actually unpack it, phrased in a very trivial way. How many angels can dance on the head of a pin? But when you read the 17th century Puritans and you read what they say about God, something very interesting emerges. And that is the fact that the 17th century Puritans are always quoting the medieval theologians on God particularly in the areas such as immutability. Why do they do that? Because the 17th century Puritans are interested in emphasizing the constancy and the eternal commitment of God to the way of salvation. And where does the church first hash that one out? In the Middle Ages. The vast scholastic systems of theology that are developed in the Middle Ages, and despite the rumors, are never developed in isolation from exegesis. All medieval scholastic theologians were also exegetes. The development of the notion of God as absolutely trustworthy and what one might call the theological foundations for that developed in the Middle Ages. Very, very practical point. How do you pray if you have doubts that God is the same yesterday and today and forever. It's very difficult to pray, I think, to God in those circumstances. How do you articulate that truth? Well, very few people have ever done it better than the medieval theologians did. And it seemed very interesting when you read the Puritans, you pick this up. No, the Puritans did not hold with medieval theology in its greatest extent, if you like. But they knew a good argument when they saw one. And they also realized there was little point in reinventing the wheel. Of all people, the medievals understood the radical difference there is between the creator and the creature. And we're able to express that theologically. However, it's when we come to the Reformation that I think we really start to see the development of uh, what we can sympathize with and understand as practical theology. What happens at the Reformation? Well, we need to, to think about what's going on at the Reformation in general. I said earlier, many theological problems are not theological in origin. What is happening in the 16th century? A whole host of things are happening socially and culturally. Literacy rates are starting to rise a little bit. There is a printing press, so it's easier to transmit ideas over great spaces, uh, great geographical spaces, as never before. Also, people are starting to ask questions, it appears, about personal salvation that have not really been asked in the Middle Ages. So you have this picture of of Europe in ferment. It's in cultural ferment. People are becoming disturbed. Their ways of life are changing. Cities are rising and growing. People are leaving the countryside. They're leaving their feudal habits and patterns of behavior that they've had for centuries. They're leaving the farmlands. And they're moving to the cities. They're becoming basket weavers. they're becoming printers. They're starting to be involved in making things. Trade and commerce is developing. Well, how does this affect us theologically? It affects us theologically because it changes the way people think about the world. The world becomes a more disturbing place in the 16th century. I mean, I, my wife is from the island of Lewis, off the far west coast of Scotland, and you know, I was born in Birmingham and grew up in Birmingham and then in Gloucestershire. Compare my wife to myself. When I go and visit my wife's family on the island of Lewis, I learn very early on that you never say anything disparaging about anybody on the island for the simple reason they're all related somewhere down the line. Fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth cousins twice removed. These are sort of significant relations. Why is that? Because it's a rural society where historically there's been very little movement. Everybody knows everybody else. Family is much bigger for her than it is for me. My family is my mum, dad, my two sisters. I haven't seen my cousins for over a decade. I'd have difficulty remembering the names of my second cousins if I ever knew them in the first place. The social support network for me is very different. You know, I live in the States. I have no relatives. When my wife and I go away, we are at the simplest level. We have to put the dog in a kennel. I lived on the Isle of Lewis, just passed the dog off to. My third cousin, twice removed, down the road, and they'd look after my dog for me. So the world is a very different place in some ways for me than it is for my wife. That's happening on a massive scale in the 16th century. People are leaving the villages and going to the cities. People are becoming very disturbed. All of the old certainties are being swept away. And that's very important because these people are ordinary people that certain pastors are pastoring. And it has an impact on the way pastors pastor because the problems are becoming new and different. And at the same time as all of this social change is taking place, along comes this man, Martin Luther. And Luther proposes that justification is by grace through faith, through the imputation of Christ's righteousness. In other words, that the righteousness by which you are justified is that that you grasp by faith. Think about that. Previously, you got grace by attending Mass, by being plugged into the sacramental system of the church. To an extent, you as an individual and what you believed was dramatically relativized by that. That there was a sense in which, well, it didn't matter if you weren't taking responsibility for your own faith, if you like. You were able to get the benefit of Through the church. Along comes Luther and says, no. You have to believe that Christ died and rose again for you. You have to believe the words of Christ. You have to grab hold of Christ by faith. You have to take responsibility for it. Now combine those two things. At the very moment where all of your certainties, social and cultural certainties, are being torn away from you because of the rise of cities, and the depopulation of the countryside, at the very moment when the world is becoming a scary and uncertain place, you would probably look to the one point of stability in your life for security. You would look to the church. And you say, well, in the midst of all this change, at least the church is there. At that very moment when you look to the church, the church itself is plunged into a dramatic transformation of the way that it does things. Suddenly you go along to church and the liturgy is in a language you can understand. Now we think of that and we think, oh, that's great, now I understand what's going on. Look at some of the reactions to Vatican II when the Latin Mass was abolished. People didn't like that because it was change. It disturbed a lot of Catholics that suddenly they were going to church and they could understand what was going on because that's not what they went to church for. They didn't go to church to understand what was going on, they went to church to make sure the priest was doing his job for them properly. Whether they understood the words or not was irrelevant. You go to church in the sixteenth century and you hear words you understand challenging you. That's a very, very disturbing thing. This is all really to as a sort of a pitch to, to create, I would say, sympathy for what the reformers are doing. When the reformers engage in their reforming activities in the 16th century, when they start to develop Protestant theology proper, you cannot isolate it from the fact that these men were pastors. Many of them were politicians. Many of them were ruthless politicians. Many of them, if not most of them, didn't play by the rules all of the time. We should never engage in hagiography of the reformers. Total depravity is a doctrine that applies especially, I think, to Christians and especially to Christian leaders. We should never exempt them from that. But the reformers were working in a context where their theology had to be practical precisely because it was creating so many practical problems. The the reformers' theology had to be worked out in the fire of pastoral practice. And just as an aside here, a lot of uh, fuss has been made about the fact that in the early Reformation, it seems that assurance was made of the essence of faith. That if you were a Christian, then you knew you were a Christian and had full confidence in that. You track to the 17th century, and the Westminster Confessions sort of says, normally one should have assurance, but one can have faith without being assured. And a lot of scholars have sort of said, well, that just shows how People are deviating from the early Reformation. Generally, systematicians say that. As a historian, I say, no. That shows that the Reformation theology created certain problems that it was not capable of answering. And in the 17th century, after 100 years of pastoral practice, the men at the Westminster Assembly knew that Reformation theology required modification in the light of the pastoral practice that flowed out of the original Reformation insights. You can't have a problem with assurance until somebody tells you that you ought to have assurance. And nobody told anybody that until the Reformation. So one can hardly expect the Reformers to be dealing with the problems created by that if the question's never been asked before. You don't need to engage in complicated, Barthian historiography of the Christology of the reformers as opposed to the Christology of the Westminster divines to understand the shift in assurance. You just have to think of these people as normal human beings who are working in churches, wrestling with real human beings, real human problems in the light of new questions that have been raised. We don't have to engage in what I call the the theological conspiracy theory of doctrinal development where it's all about doing Calvin down or something like that. It's not that at all. It's an example of how theology raises pastoral practical questions and insights into Scripture, application of Scripture is modified in the light of problems, the new problems, that those new questions and statements make. I want to talk now and demonstrate this by... Reflecting on the life of Martin Luther, I confess to a certain self-indulgence at this point. Uh, I'm a reformed person, but Luther just, his life is just far more interesting than that of most reformed theologians. Uh, And he's far more fun to talk about. I say, you know, the students say to me, we come to Westminster and half of our Reformation course is on Luther. How come? And I just say, well, he's just—he's just a lot more fun than Calvin at the end of the day. And you know, when you've taught this course ten or fifteen years in a row, you've got to find ways of of maintaining your interest. And and Luther is such a a a likable and dislikable character at the same time. The story is worth telling. Many of you will know, of course, Martin Luther was originally Um, destined by his father for a career in law. He was uh, going to. He went, was sent to the University of Erfurt in Germany to study for the law. His father had started life as a miner and worked his way up to being a mine manager. His father, if you like, symbolized the kind of shifts that are taking place in the 16th century that I talked about. Social mobility is becoming a possibility. The rise of the cash economy, if you like, the rise of trade, all of these things are oiling the wheels that allow you to be socially mobile. And Luther's father epitomizes that. He rises from being a miner to being a manager of a mine. Marxist historian would no doubt describe him as a class traitor, I suppose, in the way that he moved. But Luther's father's ambitions were projected onto his son as well. His son... Was to be destined for the law. I don't know if there are any lawyers here, but I say, you know, if you want to make lots of money and have no integrity, the easiest way to do it is a career in law. Martin Luther's father clearly had a similar philosophy. Luther is studying law at the University of Erfurt, and on his way home uh, from university one day, he's nearly hit by a bolt of lightning, and he's thrown flat on his face, and. Famously, he cries out in the middle of this thunderstorm, St. Anne, save me, and I will become a monk. And within two weeks, he has uh, knocked on the door of the Augustinian uh, monastery in Erfurt and become an Augustinian brother, much to his father's disgust. Father's very, very upset with this. Not only was Luther no longer destined for a lucrative career in law, he had joined a relatively minor order of monks as well. It wasn't even as if he'd picked, if you like, the Oxbridge. Of orders to join. He'd, you know, he'd gone to, I hope hope nobody, he'd chosen Luton College of Higher Education, should we say, over Oxbridge. I hope there's nobody from Luton College here. I don't mean that as as an offense, but I'm sure if somebody had a scholarship to Cambridge and they chose to go to Luton, their father would probably have something to say about it. That's what Luther's done. And over the next ten years, he becomes, in some ways, the quintessential late medieval early modern man because the question Luther wrestles with is the new question. And the new question is, how can I stand before a righteous God? Said that in the Middle Ages, that question doesn't really come up. Nobody has assurance in the Middle Ages except the super saints who get a direct revelation from God. And if you have a direct revelation from God, it's always more likely you're mad than it was a real direct revelation. So, in practice, nobody has assurance in the Middle Ages. And that's not a problem because it's what keeps you as a good Christian, a good Catholic. If you're not assured, you continue to behave yourself and attend to the sacraments and live a good life. This is what I have, you know, the problem I have with people saying, well, you know, Wycliffe was a Luther before Luther. Wycliffe never believed in assurance. Wycliffe was a medieval man. He didn't believe you could be assured of faith. Wycliffe was medieval, Huss, thoroughly medieval. Martin Luther is the man for whom it becomes the big issue. And Luther will spend 10 years, first of all in Erfurt and then in Wittenberg, wrestling with the question of how can I stand before a gracious God? And his theology undergoes several shifts during this time, all of them theological and all of them highly practical. First one is, he comes to a view of sin that is radically different from that which he was taught by his medieval masters. He had been taught by his medieval masters that sin was equivalent to an illness or a wound or a piece of tinder. Sin was like being covered in gasoline. You're likely to explode at any moment. We could describe it as it's a weakness. If you're covered in gasoline, you're not necessarily on fire. But any minute now, boom, you could go. Luther came to realize that that was not a radically enough view of sin. Sin was death. His study of the Apostle Paul led him to believe that the appropriate metaphor for sin was not illness, was not a wound, was death. In other words, sin is no longer, one might say, a process or a weakness. It's a status. It's a status of death. Secondly, Luther changes his understanding of baptism. Baptism, he'd been taught, was a washing. You get washed in baptism, and then you go off in your sin again. So you get washed, you get cleaned up, you go off your sin, you get dirty, you have to go back to the sacraments and get cleaned up. Luther regards that ultimately as an inadequate account of the New Testament view of baptism, because it makes baptism just the start of the Christian life. For Luther, baptism became about death and resurrection. So as he shifts his view of sin to sin from wound to sin as death, he comes to think of baptism as death and rising to life. And a few years ago I was teaching this class when I was on the faculty in Aberdeen and um, a gentleman put up his hand and he said, that's terrible, when people bring their children for baptism, he said, they don't want to hear about death, they want to give thanks to God for a new life. And I said, which church do you belong to? And he said, um, I belong to the Anglican, you know, the, Episcopal, it'd be the Episcopal church in Scotland. And I said, well... I said, do you use the Book of Common Prayer? And he said, "I said, yeah. I said, well, go away and look at what the Book of Common Prayer says about it. And he said, Book of Common Prayer just says baptism's an opportunity for giving thanks for a little baby. I said, go away and read it. He came back next week and he said, that's a terrible book, that Book of Common Prayer. <laughs> and I said, well, it, you know, you just can't win in those situations. But Luther comes to see sin as death. And you're sitting there and you think, well, how does this become practical? 1517 The Pope, Leo X, is uh, in debt. The papacy has been at war with the Holy Roman Empire. The papacy has commissioned the building of St. Peter's Cathedral, one of the great wonders of Renaissance art and architecture, of course. But the Pope needs some money. And there's a man called Albrecht of Mainz in Germany who already has two bishoprics, and he'd like a third one. He'd like the bishopric of Brandenburg, but... He's not allowed to have that because he's restricted to the two. However, in the medieval church, it's a bit like a local government today. Um, if you have the money, you can usually get round the rules in some way. And the Pope says, well, if you, if you pay me uh, and help me get out of my debt situation uh, relative to St. Peter's, um, we can arrange for you to have the extra C. Uh, well, what we'll do to help you pay this money off is you'll be, you can raise an indulgence. You can raise an indulgence on your territory. What an indulgence is, we'll talk about that in a few minutes. But you can raise an indulgence and um, I'll allow you, you know, Albert, you borrow the money from the bank, you pay me, you raise an indulgence and I'll allow you to send half the money to paying off the interest on your loan, the other half comes to Rome. So the Pope, as usual, wins both ways. He gets the money from Albert and he also gets money from the deal on the indulgences. And a man called Tetzel proceeds through Germany selling indulgences. Well, what is an indulgence? An indulgence is a piece of paper that effectively grants time off purgatory. The idea is that uh, when you die, um, you're not fitted as yet to stand in the presence of of God, and you spend some time in purgatory being purified. And uh, in the Middle Ages system was developed whereby you could buy the extra good works that some of the really saintly people had done and have them transferred to your account or to the account of a dear departed one. Purgatory itself is an interesting doctrine. It starts in the early church really as a point of eschatology. Guys like Augustus say, well, where do you go when you die? Well, obviously you're not pure enough to stand in the presence of God, so you go off and get purged a bit, and then you stand in the presence of God. The shift takes place in the Middle Ages where purgatory becomes linked to the penitential system. That's when it becomes critically dangerous, one might say, from a pastoral point of view. And that's the background against which Luther is working. So Tetzel makes his way through Germany, and he's proclaiming this indulgence. And he has various sales pitches, an extremely distasteful one. He says that even if you've raped the Virgin Mary, uh, if you purchase one of my indulgences, uh, that will clear the debt for you. Uh, A more amusing one perhaps is his little jingle that's often translated as every time a coin in the coffer rings a soul from purgatory springs. Tetzel makes his way towards Wittenberg. He's not allowed into Wittenberg for the interesting reason that Wittenberg has its own little indulgence sale going on. You know, People often think, well, he doesn't go into Wittenberg because Luther's making this great stand against indulgences. No. It's more subtle than that. Wittenberg has its own indulgence sale of indulgences, little indulgences going on and doesn't want its trade damaged by Tetzel's one being brought in. But Luther of course is alleged, and I have some sympathy with this, alleged to have launched the Reformation with his protest against indulgences. Nailing 95 theses against indulgences on the castle door, the door of the castle chapel at Wittenberg, protesting this sale. Luther, one of the interesting things about the 95 theses is if you read them, there is almost nothing Protestant about them at all. If you read the 95 theses, unless you have a reasonable background in medieval theology, you will not understand two thirds of them. These are theses for debate, technical theological debate about medieval theology. Almost nothing Protestant in the 95 theses whatsoever. Luther had said more radical things a month previously at his disputation against scholastic theology. And nobody had paid a blind bit of attention. Why is it that Luther picks this fight over indulgences when it seems that his theology is not that Protestant at this point in time? It's this. The problem Luther has with indulgences at this point is not that he objects to indulgences, interestingly enough. It's that he objects to the abuse of indulgences. Why does he object to the abuse of indulgences? Because they're conning ordinary people into believing that they can buy the grace of God. Luther thinks indulgences are okay, I think right down until about 1530. And he sees them as operating in this way. I mean, I see my friend Paul Levy in the audience. Let's say, Paul has done some outrageous sin against me. He's borrowed a CD of mine and he smashed it. And he comes to see me and he says... And with a a sort of sneering laugh, he says, ho, 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 I smashed your CD, but I'll give you 20 quid and we're all square. That's an abusive indulgence. If Paul comes to me and says, "I, I smashed your CD, my heart is broken because I abused your trust, how can I repay you? And I say, well, you know, how much money have you got in your bank account? And he says, I've got 15 pounds. And I say, give me 20 pounds and we'll call it quits when he gives me that money, it hurts him and it demonstrates to me how seriously he's taken the sin against me. Luther's problem in 1517 is a very practical one and a very theological one at the same time. He has become convinced that medieval theology is wrong because it limits, it relativizes the enormity of sin And if sin is death, then only the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and the passage of Christ from death through to resurrection and life, only that is sufficient to purchase the grace of God. The notion that the grace of God can be bought by a mere cash transaction, which does not reflect the fact that you have grasped as an individual the enormity of your situation and the enormity of the problem facing you, and the vastness of God's grace in sending Christ to die for you, it is that that offends Luther about the sale of indulgences at this point. Don't get me wrong, Luther will move to a point where he rejects indulgences and purgatory as a whole. But at this point, it is that that so distresses Luther. So my first point about Luther then is the Reformation is triggered on October the 31st, 1517, by Luther's protest against indulgences. And that was a pastoral protest. I don't know how many of you saw the film Luther with uh, one of the Fine's brothers in it recently. Um, the, the, you know, there was a lot of snobby kind of theological reaction to that film. One person said, you know, how can you take a film seriously where they have pews in church in the 16th century? You know, of course, everyone would have been standing up. But yeah, to me, that was a trivial point. But one of the things the film does nicely is you remember where Luther's walking through town and he meets this poor girl with with her child, and she is so delighted that she's just bought this indulgence. And she says to Luther, you know, I've just spent, you know, I've just spent the food money, if you like, to buy this indulgence. And that's the sort of the turning point in Luther's life. I don't know if it ever happened that way. It's kind of a Hollywood way of capturing in a nutshell ten years of Luther's intellectual development. But It's a brilliant way of showing that what really drove Luther was, if you like, the need to connect his theology and practice. What broke Luther's heart was the fact that people were being conned into thinking they could buy the grace of God. So the Reformation has a quintessentially pastoral beginning. I don't buy those sort of Victorian... Uh, buy into the sort of Victorian image of Luther nailing the 95 Theses to the castle door and sort of symbolically driving a stake through the medieval church's heart. That was not his intention. What he was doing was little more radical than me, putting up a notice on you know, my notice board at Westminster to say, Truman wants to debate this topic at such and such a time. It was a way of telling people, it's a serious issue and I want it publicly debated. You weren't calling out the church, if you like, into mortal combat. So I'm, you know, I want to relativize Luther's stand at that level. But what I want to emphasize is the Reformation started because Luther felt people were being conned into believing they could buy the grace of God. And that, to me, lies at the very heart of Protestantism. Protestantism is all about the grace of God. And that is a very, very pastoral connection one makes it goes on in Luther's life. What are the other theological issues that also connect to his pastoral practice? Well, there is this famous theology of the cross, Heidelberg, 1518. The church makes a fatal mistake. Um, if I had been pope at the time, which thankfully I was not, but from a political strategic point of view, what they should have done in 1517 was casually invited Luther to come to Rome, and then executed him upon arrival. What the church does is a fatal, makes a fatal error from its own perspective. The church decides to let the Augustinian order deal with Luther as a little local problem. And at April 1517, Luther meets at a local chapter meeting and presents his theology more thoroughly. And it's really in April 1518 1518, that Luther's theology takes off dramatically when he talks about what he calls the theology of the cross what is the theology of the cross well luther says there are two ways of approaching god one can approach god on one's own terms or one can approach god as god has revealed himself to be very theological points very very practical in their immediate outworkings if you think about it you know i hate to pick on paul again but he's so pick honorable down there in the audience you know if paul wants me to like him what does he do does things to make me like him. He gives me gifts. He says nice things about me. He strokes my ego. And as a result of that, he's in my favor. And Luther says the problem with medieval theology is by and large, on a very sophisticated level, theologians apply that method to the way they approach God. What he calls the theology of glory. The theology of glory is essentially this. You make God in human image. You assume that God is just like you, only much bigger and much more perfect, and therefore you try to deal with him on your terms. Obvious implications for justification for Luther. If Paul wants to be justified in my presence, what does he do? He does good things in order to earn my favor. If he wants to be justified before God, what's he instinctively going to do? He's going to try to do good things so that when he comes into the presence of God and God says, well, what do you do? He said, well, I did you a favor on this day, and I did you a favor on that day, and I helped this person across the road on that day, and you should be pleased with me because I was a decent member of society. Everybody liked me. And if you don't want to stand out from everybody else, God, then you should like me too. It's justification by works. Luther says the key is you need to understand that theology should be rooted in the cross. You don't look to God as how you think he should be. You look to God as how you see him as revealing himself. And Luther picks really up on teaching in 1 Corinthians, I think, here. He says it's the theology of the cross. That gives you a true theology. What does God's power look like? Well, it doesn't look like Tony Blair magnified a thousand times. God's power looks like the weakness of the cross. It's a complete inversion of what you would humanly expect power to be. What does God's righteousness look like? Well, Christ was damned as a sinner and a drunkard when he was here on earth. God's righteousness looks like the righteousness that Christ exhibits in dying on the cross, filthy and broken. What does God's love look like? How did God love his only begotten son? He gave him to die on the cross. What does Christ's kingship looks like? Well, it looks like the one who, though he considered not robbery to be equal with God, yet humbled himself and took the form of a servant and was obedient, even unto death on the cross. What Luther says is, if you want to do theology, you've got to think about God as he's revealed himself. But then make the connection. This is not abstract theology for Luther. As soon as you start thinking of God in terms of the cross, the way you live your life is going to be different. That has immediate pastoral implications. Somebody comes up to Paul and says, how do I stand righteous before God? Paul does not say to him, well, how would you want to stand righteous before me? Stroke my ego, do me a favor. Well, go and do that to God. Paul immediately says, look to the cross and realize there that God, as Luther puts it in the Heidelberg Disputation, God does not respond to the lovely. He creates the lovely. In other words, God doesn't look at you and say, hey, that guy's got some really lovely characteristics. I think my heart's warming towards him, and I'm going to love him and favor him. The Lord goes to that which is ugly and despised, and because he first loved it, he makes it a lovely object of love. So, Luther's Reformation continues apace, developing in the theology of the cross. And of course, the theology of the cross also has other profound Pastoral implications. When somebody comes to you as a pastor and says, I'm suffering. I have cancer. A loved one has cancer. A loved one's been torn away from me. How do I know that God loves me in that? Well, that's a very difficult pastoral situation to deal with. But you don't stand any chance whatsoever of dealing with it if you haven't got a grasp of what goes on on the cross. At the very least, when you look to the cross, you can say, well if that's the kind of treatment that the only perfect human being, the only begotten beloved son of God received, there is a sense in which why as Christians should we expect to be treated any better? Now that might be a very brutal and hard thing to say directly like that in a pastoral situation. But if you have that underpinning your theology, you're not going to be wrestling too long and hard with the old, you know, why do bad things happen to good people kind of question that really lies at the back of an awful lot of what we think about suffering and evil in the world. We can't get out from under the idea that there are good people out there and bad things happen to them and it's unfair. Well, one might say, there was a good person out there, Jesus Christ. Bad thing did happen to him. He was crucified. And yet even his death, was not able to separate him from the love of God. And even his death, evil though it was, became an utter subversion of death. And no matter what you're facing in your own life, you know because Christ has risen on the third day that that evil has already been subverted in the grand scheme of things to your benefit and to God's greater glory. Now that's not to say in any given pastoral situation you should go charging in with that as your response when somebody comes and laments before you. Sometimes you just have to sit there and listen. The silence of Job's comforters in some ways was the most useful thing they did in the book of Job when they sat silently and listened to him lamenting. But Luther would say, the theology that's driving my whole transformed view of God is profoundly practical and pastoral in its orientation. I'm drawing towards the end of the first session here, so there's one more point I want to make, and that's this, because it will touch on what I want to say in the second and third classes. And that is, Luther also comes, through his understanding of who God is, to a very distinctive understanding of preaching. If you go into, say, Cologne Cathedral in Germany, or any medieval cathedral in Europe, Britain included, and you walk uh, through the main doors, where do your eyes immediately go? straight down to the altar. And that's because medieval architects understood the theological implications of architecture. And they designed their buildings to reflect the kind of piety that medieval Catholicism embodied. And it was a piety that centered on the mass. If you go into St. Giles Cathedral, Edinburgh, uh, I'm inclined to say go in on any day but a Sunday, actually, but if you go into St. Giles Cathedral in Edinburgh, that's just a bitter comment about St. Giles Cathedral. Please forgive me for it. If you go into St. Giles Cathedral, Edinburgh, where do your eyes go? To the pulpit at the centre. And that's because whoever built St. Giles Cathedral, Edinburgh also understood the theological implications of architecture and placed the pulpit right at the centre because Protestant piety revolves around the word preached. And it revolves around the word preached because Luther, Calvin, and their colleagues and successors believed that God was a speaking God. And they believed that when believers gathered together to hear the word read and the word preached, there was a very strong sense in which God spoke. I think I'm right in saying the second Helvetic confession is the only confession that makes a definite identification between preaching and the word of God. So preaching is the word of God. Very, very strong connection. But that's not unfair to the general thrust of Reformation theology. Preaching is the word of God. That's why I shall say a bit later on, I get disturbed when the language of conversation is introduced into what's going on in preaching. That's not a very Protestant position at all. The Reformation position is that preaching is proclamation. It's a declaration of God's word. That is not to say that you have no right to question the preacher. If you're sitting there and the preacher says, well, I'm telling you that you know, these accounts of the resurrection, they didn't really happen like that. You're a Protestant. You don't have to put up with that. You can go up to him afterwards and say, but my Bible says, and the church has agreed over the centuries that Christ rose from the dead. So it's not to say that the preaching of the pulpit has the same authority as the scriptural word of God, but it is to say that the mentality about preaching was not really that it's communication of information was not that it's setting up theses for a debate. The notion was, it is the declaration of God's word for here and now. For Luther, that was declaration of the law. Do this, but you can't. So what are you going to do about it? And then declaration of the gospel. Christ has done it all for you. Just believe in him and receive his righteousness. But preaching is understood as proclamation because Luther's God and the God of the reformers was primarily a speaking God. The theology of God was that he was a God who spoke. And how is God present today? He's present primarily in his words. Where do you find his words? When you read scripture, when you hear them proclaimed from the pulpit, when you speak them to your brothers and sisters in Christ. Luther was very big on believers preaching to each other. When you meet your, your friend uh, during the week and your friend is despairing, preach the word of the gospel to them. Despair not, brother. Christ has done it all for you. If you meet your brother during the week and he's reeling around drunk and saying, "Christ done it all for me, so I can go off and get legless every night," you say, "How dare you do that?" And you hit him with the law, break him, and then you give him the gospel. So my final point this morning, uh, just talking broad and broad terms about the Reformation, it's uh, Luther's God a God who places the costliness of grace at the center, a God that places the cross at the center as the supreme revelation of how he is in his grace towards humanity, and a God who speaks and therefore requires that preaching is put central. What's interesting in the Reformation is that Luther very quickly makes the transition to getting preaching central, but it takes a couple of years to change the liturgy. It's just a final point. It takes a couple of years to change the liturgy into the vernacular. Why is that? Because Luther doesn't want to disturb people more than he has to. Another part of the story of the Lutheran Reformation is Luther was a pretty insensitive guy in many ways. I suspect if he taught at a university today, he'd be fired for political incorrectness fairly quickly. But when it came to practical changes in the church, Luther tried to be sensitive. There's a great debate that takes place in the late 1520s, 1520s about the language of Lutheran theology. Those of you who know anything about Lutheranism will know that if you pick up a Lutheran catechism today or a Lutheran book, the language of the Mass is there. Talk about the Lord's Supper as the Mass. And you think, well, that's very Catholic. Why is it called the Mass? Well, it's called the Mass because there was a great debate in Lutheranism at the end of the 1520s about what language should be used to express the new theology. And there were two sides in the debate, both of which I have sympathy with. I don't think that the wrong side... Could have won, if you like, in the debate. One side said we have new theology, and therefore we need a new language to express it. We need to get rid of all the of all the garbage, if you like, and all the language that has that garbage attached to it, and put forward a new language for expressing our new theology. Luther disagreed with that, and as usual in debates in Lutheranism, when Luther was around, Luther won on the whole, uh, by sheer, you know. He was, well, not quite literally, but he was the sort of, you know, the 800-pound gorilla in Lutheranism. Um, I think he's the only theologian who has, if if you read the Book of Concord, it actually says the confessional documents of the Lutheran Church are Scripture, you know, the various confessional documents in this book, and everything that Luther ever wrote. I think he's the only theologian whose every single writing, everything he ever wrote, has confessional status. And it gets around that by saying, but where he's not in agreement with the confessions, you can kind of leave it to one side. Um, Luther's argument was this. We keep the old language because we're doing so much damage to people's lives with our theology in terms of the chaos we're introducing and the disturbances we're introducing. We need to be sympathetic and sensitive to them. We need to leave them with some point of continuity. We need to allow them the familiar. We subvert that language by giving it a whole new range, a whole new content, a whole new function. But we don't just barge blindly in, smash everything, and then pick up the pieces. Luther understood, in some ways like perhaps a few people after him, a leading churchman after him, the real pastoral implications of the kind of reformation he was introducing. And Luther's argument won, and the argument was, we keep the old language because we do not want to disturb ordinary people more than we have to. So I hope in this first lecture I've persuaded you that Protestantism at its inception with Martin Luther raised issues that were directly and immediately pastoral and was developed in dialogue in many ways with the growing pastoral situation. I've got sort of three or four minutes to take questions and then we break for coffee. If you could restrict questions at this point to points of clarification so that I can give quick answers. That would be helpful. Yeah. Uh, excuse me, just one. Puritan, my own, is Judas, New Testament Christianity and Hebrew-based scriptures, but I think you're saying uh, still very much in the Middle Ages. So yeah. Uh, is that wrong? Or... No, I, I think... Um, an awful lot of Puritan theology is, is drawn from medieval theology. And uh, I, I, if you look at John Owen, for example, go to the very first thing he ever writes, display of Arminianism, and look at the footnotes or the marginal notes and see who he's quoting. Very, very interesting. Lots of Aquinas. I think Owen, I, I'm going to stick my neck out here, I think Owen probably quotes Aquinas more than he quotes Calvin in his writings. I may be wrong on that, but I I could be safer and say he certainly quotes Augustine and Aquinas together more than he quotes Calvin and Luther if you were to add the the numbers up. Um, And there there are also interesting, uh, some really quite naughty things that go on. Um, There was a man called Edward Bunny who uh, was a, a Puritan casuist, a Puritan pastoral theologian. And He republishes a work. A friend of mine who was a former Jesuit, he's still a Catholic, but he was a Jesuit and and did a lot of work on Jesuit casuistry, was reading a book by, I think it was Bunny one day, in research on, on casuistry, and he was thinking, I've read this book before, but I know I've never pulled Edward Bunny's book out of the library, what's going on. Suddenly he realized that he had read it before, that it was written by a Jesuit. And what Bunny had done was whipped out all the bits on the Pope and the Mass and reprinted it as a Protestant Book of Casuistry, (laughs) and and that you know, Bunny was a decent Puritan guy, but it indicates the closeness on certain points between Catholic and Protestant theology, particularly on things like the doctrine of God, justification by faith, sacraments, Roman supremacy. Very little point of contact, but on 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 other stuff, Protestants, if they found a good argument somewhere, they were quite capable of. We would say plagiarizing it and, and presenting it as their own. I think. Bunny was also involved in the, the, the sort of the, the Protestant Inquisition that, that hunted parsons down. I wouldn't swear to that, but there was a kind of sad twist to the story that Bunny was then involved in persecuting parsons, this man whose work he kind of plagiarised. Um, but uh, that's the kind of anecdote I like because it, it reminds us that the Puritans are, you know, they're good guys, but they're human and they did some pretty pretty bad things in their time. Uh, the, the, the question is: Is this sort of the, the, the appropriation of the sort of philosophy of the Middle Ages a problem in Puritanism? Well, to an extent, it will dep- you know, pay your money and take your choice. It will depend on your attitude to medieval philosophy. Um, I would say, on the whole, that what the Puritans borrow from the Middle Ages is, is extremely helpful to their theology, and doesn't. It's not that the Puritans simply borrow medieval theology; it is refracted through. Protestant exegesis. So my opinion is that the, the appropriation of the, of the sort of scholastic theology is not lethal to the Puritan project. There would be some that would disagree with that, um, but I've looked at it long and hard, and I think that on the whole, it's not. it doesn't ace exegesis at key points, if I could put it that way. Again, it depends on how you understand Reformed theology. I don't see it myself. I mean, that, but that's a, that is a long and hard. I, I can't give a 30-second answer to that. Um, there's a, there is a growing literature, I think, that seriously calls that, that kind of idea into question, but it's just too complex to answer in, in 30 seconds. Yeah, but it's a, I mean, it's a very good... It's a, that is the question, if you like, that scholarship asks at this point. It's a good question. Okay, I think we reconvene at 12 o'clock.